0: Welcome. I'm Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. So it is pretty early Sunday morning while I'm recording tomorrow's episode, which is kind of fitting because. This episode is Not Your Average Preacher's Wife. We're going to talk about Blanche Kaiser Taylor Moore. The first couple of full-length episodes, we talked about some men that did some pretty gnarly things. So I thought it was only fair we do a woman. I've also decided that it took me a lot of time to edit the first couple of full-length episodes because I wanted them to be completely perfect. I took out my stumbles, my mispronunciations. I'm going to not do that this time, unless I make a really big boo-boo. I'm just going to let you hear me stumble a little bit here and there, because I'm human. So it's 1989. We have a diminutive, little church-going lady. Her name is Blanche Moore. Well, Blanche catches the attention of law enforcement when her husband, Reverend Dwight Moore, falls ill. This illness has some rather suspicious symptoms. So much so that his doctors order a toxicology test. And what they find out is that Reverend Moore is suffering from arsenic poisoning. Miraculously, Reverend Moore survives, even after they discover he has ingested a massive amount of arsenic over about what they suspect is a one-week period. Usually in the cases of poisoning, The first person that law enforcement looks at is going to be the partner. So they're going to look at the wife, which is Blanche. They find out when they do a little digging that Blanche's former boyfriend and her first husband are both deceased. So maybe something's going on where she is just a very unlucky lady. Let's go back to the beginning. Blanche Kaiser was born on February 17, 1933, in Concord, North Carolina. Her father was Parker D. Kaiser, who they called P.D., and her mother was Flannie Parker was a Baptist minister, and he kind of had a reputation as a womanizer. He also had a problem with gambling, which means they had money problems. He was also an alcoholic. What was Parker's solution to his money problems? Well, he forced his daughter Blanche into prostitution so that he could pay his gambling debts and so he could keep the booze flowing. It's reported that Blanche, when talking to people, would flip between quoting scriptures to sexually explicit language, all in the same sentence. So, not surprisingly, Blanche is going to want to get out of this abuse that she is suffering at the hands of her father. So in 1952, at just 19, she marries James Taylor, who is five years her senior. James is a veteran, and he also restores furniture. Together, they have a daughter one year later, Vanessa, in 53. When Blanche is just 23 years old, her father, Parker, leaves his family for a younger woman. Her mother, Flonnie, files for divorce. In Blanche's life in 54, she is now working as a cashier at Kroger. By 1959, she has been promoted to the highest-paying job a female could have at the time, which was head cashier. She gave birth to her second daughter, Cindy, just a few weeks before she took that promotion. So, as outsiders, we might look and think things are going pretty good for her. She's got two daughters, she's married, she's got a... Promotion at work? Well, you would be wrong because apparently husband James is a little bit like her father. He drinks a lot and he's a compulsive gambler. He might disappear for entire weekends. Then he'd come home after spending the family's money and of course he has no explanation for where the money went. But Blanche isn't going to take this sitting down. What is her revenge? To have a series of affairs with different men at Kroger's. This obviously does not go over well at home, and it is the cause of some rather violent arguments. In 1960, Blanche decides to reconcile with her father Parker, so she goes to see him. Now, I have no idea what you say to a father that prostituted you out, and I do not understand why you would even want to reconcile with him in the first place. For whatever reasons... Blanche decides this is what she wants. So a couple of years later in 1962, Blanche decides that she wants to catch herself a 27-year-old at work named Raymond Reed. There's a problem. Reed is married and has two young children. Not to mention, Blanche is married with two young children. It takes her about three years to win him over, but Blanche is nothing if not determined. And she does eventually get him into her bed but we shouldn't feel too bad for these three years that she worked to get Ray because in the meantime, she had plenty of other men visit her bedroom while she's working on Raymond. In September of 1966, Blanche is still trying to reconcile with her father and she goes to see him again. Very interestingly, his health takes a turn for the worse right after Blanche arrives, being the magnanimous person that she is. Blanche stays by his side and nurses him, right up to the bitter end. The age of 62, Parker dies. Cause of death? They say it's heart attack triggered by chronic emphysema. It seems that the violent stomach cramps, the diarrhea, projectile vomiting, delirium, and the bright blue face escape the doctor's attention. Because these are all signs of arsenic poisoning. Four years later, in November of 1970, Blanche's mother-in-law, Isla Moore, passes away. Natural causes, they say. Maybe someone should have made a note that her eyeballs had turned cobalt blue. And maybe they should have checked her stomach, where they would have found undigested arsenic. Seems like a lot of doctors in this era don't notice a lot of things, especially Blue things. In 1971, Raymond Reed leaves his wife and children, files for divorce, and he rents an apartment. Blanche makes daily stops to cook Ray's breakfast, because supposedly he is incapable of taking care of himself. Keep in mind, she is still married to James Taylor. Well, not surprisingly, the talk of this affair between Blanche and Ray doesn't just stay contained inside of the walls of Kroger. It has made its way out into the town. This point, I think Ray believes that he and Blanche are going to have a permanent relationship. But two more years go by and she is still with her husband, James. In September of 1973, though, James Taylor seems to be suffering from the flu. He is also suffering from diarrhea, a sore throat. His hair is falling out. He has bloody stool. His glands are swollen and he has painful blisters on his hands and feet. He is hospitalized at the end of September. He dies on October 2nd at the age of 45. Strangely, he dies just an hour after the loving Blanche brings him some ice cream. Taylor leaves behind a pretty modest estate. Pretty soon, Blanche uses that modest estate to buy herself a new home in Burlington. People around town are suspecting that she got the money by stealing it from work. And because the talk of her affair with Ray is known in the town, no one is surprised at all when she and Ray Reed start dating openly. The two of them, they talk about getting married, but Blanche keeps postponing it for one reason or another. So this relationship, it goes on for a while, making it all the way up into 1985 before things go bad. There is some speculation that even before 85 and the end of things with Reed, she was secretly dating the regional manager of Kroger. This was a man named Kevin Denton. Seems kind of to me that Blanche has a thing for men that work at Kroger's. Regardless, Blanche goes cold on this apparently because she ends up filing a sexual harassment suit against Denton himself and Kroger in October of 1985. Kevin Denton has to resign, and Kroger settles the suit out of court two years later, so 1987, for $275,000. Something else that happened in 1985. A mysterious fire breaks out in her home. She blames a pervert for this. This is a nameless pervert that she's seen loitering around the property. I don't know how she knows he's a pervert unless she thinks he's a peeping Tom, but regardless... Since the firemen have decided that the fire is arson, they actually buy this story. Blanche gets some insurance money from the fire and she invests that cash into a new mobile home. Well, guess what? The crazy pervert shows up again and burns this trailer to the ground just a month after she bought it. Blanche gets some more insurance money. I can't imagine that anyone would still want to insure this woman, but she gets some money. And then on Easter Sunday, 1985, Blanche meets Reverend Dwight Moore. By all accounts, he is an awesome man. He's very charismatic. He is well-known. He is well-liked. He has a great singing voice. Something interesting to note in the town of Burlington, the churches outnumber the bars. He is the pastor of the Carolina United Church of Christ. Reverend Moore is a 51-year-old divorcee. Blanche introduces herself to him at a sunrise service. Then she returns to get some counseling with him as her lawsuit with Kroger is dragging on. She starts meeting Reverend Moore for casual meals. She even alludes to some of her friends that she might marry herself a preacher in a year or so. Now, mind you, she is still seeing Raymond Reed, who thinks that he and Blanche are going to get married. Seems to me, though, that Reed is now becoming kind of an obstacle to Blanche and her plans to marry the Reverend Moore. It's also important to note that while she was still at Kroger, before the suit and before she left Kroger, she had met Reverend Dwight Moore and she was having a relationship with him. She claimed in her lawsuits, though, that she was, quote, completely alienated and antagonistic towards men and has not been able to maintain any meaningful social contacts with the opposite sex. And she said, this is due to the sexual harassment. Well, obviously she can't be dating anyone after making that statement. She hasn't gotten her settlement yet either. So she's kind of dating Reverend Moore on the down low. So let's get back to the timeline. In 1986, Raymond Reed, Blanchard's boyfriend, he develops an illness. Initially, it's diagnosed as shingles. But by April of 86, he is in the hospital and he is now showing other symptoms like vomiting, diarrhea, loss of feeling in his hands and feet, which are classic signs of arsenic poisoning. And yet, the doctors diagnose him with Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a rarely fatal disease, does have similar symptoms. So it turns out that they do order a heavy metal tox screen for Raymond. They do this on June 27th. That test will end up showing six times the normal amount of arsenic in Ray's system. But those results don't make it to the doctor. And why is that? Hang tight a couple minutes and you'll find out. At this point, Ray is still with us, but barely. So his health is like ebbing and flowing and it does this over the next three months. Blanche, who is a dedicated girlfriend, helps him draw up a new will. And surprise, surprise, she names herself as executor and beneficiary to one-third of the estate. The remaining two-thirds is being divided between his two sons. Blanche visits Reed every day. She brings him pudding, homemade milkshakes. But ironically, despite her tender loving care and the doctor's efforts, Ray declines and is put into intensive care on October 4th. He is experiencing renal and respiratory failure. He dies three days later. And when he did, by that time, he had gained 60 pounds of retained bodily fluids. He was so bloated that his skin had started to tear and that hurts to even think about. Poor Raymond. His death is blamed on Guillain-Barre syndrome. Now our lovely Blanche, she attends Raymond's funeral with an escort. Who, you might ask? Well, that would be the Reverend Dwight Moore. Blanche ends up with $30,000 on top of whatever it was she snatched from a safe deposit box at the bank and a safe that Ray had in his home. And the Reed boys, who I'm guessing have to be angels, because they kicked in another $45,000, their father's life insurance, believing that dad would have wanted Blanche to have some of it. I want to point out here that Blanche started going after, set her sights on, however you want to call it, Raymond, in 1962, and he dies in October of 1986. So 24 years. This was a 24-year relationship. And she started dating James Taylor and married him in 52. And he died in 73. A 21-year relationship. So up until this point, where we're about to start dating the reverend, she is able to go two decades apiece with each of these men Before they mysteriously fall ill. So now we have a little mourning period. And then Blanche and Reverend Moore start openly seeing each other. Which I don't think is really all that long after Reed's death. But they deem it an appropriate mourning period. So Blanche and Reverend Moore decide that they are going to get married in August of 1987. But Blanche develops breast cancer. So the date is moved to November of 1988. Then Reverend Moore gets really sick with vomiting and diarrhea. This sounds familiar. Yet this time it really isn't Blanche causing it. He actually has an intestinal blockage and it takes two surgeries to fix it. Finally, on April 21st of 1989, Blanche and Dwight Moore get married. They take a long weekend to honeymoon in New Jersey, where a grandchild of Dwight's has recently been born. They head back home on April 26th and while on the Cape May Ferry, Dwight eats a pastry and he falls ill. Instead of getting medical attention in New Jersey, Blanche drives her new husband home to Burlington where she nurses him. On the drive back, he is curled up in the fetal position on the back seat. When she's home, she talks to her daughter Cindy and explains Dwight's sickness. Cindy tells her mom, you need to get him to the hospital. So on April 28th, Dwight is admitted to Alamance County Hospital. He takes a sudden and serious turn for the worse. Interestingly, just after Blanche brings him some homemade soup. The doctors send him home with no diagnosis and no cure. Blanche drives him to North Carolina Memorial Hospital, but they will not admit him without a written reference from Alamance County. So poor Dwight is sent home again, and he is pretty close to death by April 30th. At this point, he is retaining about 40 pounds of body fluid, which happened in a 24-hour period. This is before Blanche took him back to the Alamance County Hospital. They sent him to North Carolina Memorial again. Fortunately, this time, they sent him with the necessary paperwork. So while this is going on, Blanche is telling his family that Dwight is just fine. He is in the hospital for some tests. Tox screens are ordered, and on May 13th, the results filed state that Moore's body contained 20 times the lethal dose of arsenic. Obviously, police were notified, and they are quite interested to learn that Blanche has quite a run of bad luck with people falling ill and dying over the last 25 years. So God bless Reverend Moore, he does not believe for one minute that Blanche is to blame for what happened to him. He insists that he probably inhaled the poison while spraying his garden for pests. There's this poison called anti-ant that contains arsenic. Apparently, Blanche had a habit of buying it, and I read that at one point she had asked Reverend Moore to buy some for her. Anyways, the police are not buying this. They don't think that Reverend Moore inhaled anything while treating his garden. So they bring Blanche in and question her on June 6th. On June 13th, they exhume Raymond Reed's body. And that autopsy reveals that he had elevated arsenic levels. Okay, now remember a few minutes ago, we were talking about the tox screen that was done on Raymond Reed when he was in the hospital? And we wondered why no one saw the results? Well, here's why. The North Carolina um, State Bureau of Investigation finds out that while Raymond Reed was at Baptist Hospital, the doctors had ordered that toxicology screen. But on the day that the test results came back, the person responsible for taking care of Reed had rotated to a different hospital. And the new resident doctor responsible for Reed never sent the results up the chain of command. Because of this, and this is awful, it seems that Raymond Reed received the final and fatal dose of arsenic while in the hospital. The State Bureau of Investigation was already pretty suspicious, obviously, of Blanche, especially when they find out that she had attempted to have Reverend Moore's pension changed so that she would be the principal beneficiary of it. They were also aware that she hadn't been completely honest about how much money she'd gotten from Ray Reed's estate. In one of the police interviews, Blanche actually says that both Reverend Moore and Raymond Reed were depressed and that they were probably taking arsenic because of this, which sounds super plausible to me, right? Also comes out that Blanche had been having sex with Reed at the same time she was dating Dwight Moore and that she also had Reverend Moore's hair cut, likely in an attempt to keep the State Bureau of Investigation, from using hair samples. Didn't work, because they used pubic hair instead. On July eighteenth, 1989, Blanche was arrested and charged with the first-degree murder of Raymond Reed. Now, they chose to go for the conviction with Reed, or the charges with Reed, because they felt they could prove she had spoon-fed arsenic-laced pudding to Reed while he was in the hospital. Reverend Moore's poisoning had been discovered earlier on before it reached fatal levels and they thought that would make it more difficult to prove exactly who was poisoning him. The trial starts in October of 1990 in Winston-Salem. Blanche denies, of course, that she gave Raymond Reed any food. The state turns around and produces a whopping 53 witnesses who will testify that Blanche made daily trips to the hospital and that she had food with her. Now, the state's case was made easier considering how complex it was going to be, and the reason why is because Raymond Reed's ex-wife and their sons were suing Baptist Hospital for malpractice. They succeeded in getting the statute of limitations for wrongful death tossed out due to the fact that they were able to prove that Blanche, who was the executor of Raymond Reed's estate, should have been the one to get the toxicology screen results. The Reed family's argument was that Blanche was able to fraudulently keep them from finding out about the test. The terms of a deal struck between Forsyth County DA's office and the Reed family lawyers meant that almost all of the evidence that was used against Blanche was obtained from the lawyers for the Reed family. Part of the reason for this is that even though courts interpret the Fifth Amendment protection against self-incrimination pretty broadly, where criminal cases are concerned, doesn't generally apply to civil cases. Civil law seems to be more lenient as far as searches and subpoenas. Now, I watched an uh, episode of Snapped where they interviewed Blanche's daughter, Cindy. And she said that, you know, her mom had some really good qualities. She wasn't perfect, but she was still pretty good. And she says initially the family all stood behind Blanche they did not believe that she was capable of the things that she was being accused of. But of course, you know, they're sitting there through this trial, things are coming out. She's turning to her sister going, I didn't know that. Did you know that about mom? So she says then that there were days where she wanted to just sink into the bench she was sitting on. Cause she was completely in the dark about some of the things that her mother had been up to. When the authorities had approached Cindy and her sister, Vanessa, about exhuming their dad, James, Cindy says they basically said, sure, because they are convinced that they're not going to find anything new. They're going to find out that her dad, who had had a heart attack at age 39, had died of a heart attack at age 45. They are still at a point where the family of Blanche does not believe she is guilty of what she is accused. So the day that they're going to exhume James Taylor Cindy said her husband took her out of town so she wouldn't have to be there when they did that. The preliminary results come back in just a couple of days, and Cindy gets a call from her sister Vanessa. Vanessa tells Cindy she needs to come home right away because they have found more arsenic in their dad James than anyone. Cindy goes on to say that her family also feels loss, not just the Reed family, because She has regrets that her children will now never know their grandfather. We know it's because Blanche poisoned him. The judge on this case makes mention of how immaculately dressed Blanche was. He said that he gave the family a room that they could meet in every morning and that the family would bring Blanche a new outfit every day to wear to trial. At one point, one of the female prosecutors tells the judge that she is making daily trips to the mall because she also needs to get a new outfit so she will not be outdone by Blanche. The judge says that whether it's his imagination or not, he says that there were times when it seemed another personality would kind of pop out and he'd have to ask himself, is that Blanche talking? But as quick as it would happen, she'd go back to being just Blanche again, sweet southern lady grandma, preacher's wife. Raymond Reed's son says that during the trial, Blanche really did not seem worried at all, even when she took the stand. So originally the murder charge against her was brought by Alamance County, but this was transferred over to Forsyth County, and there she was convicted on November 14th. On the 17th, the jury recommended the death penalty. Apparently when the jury came back from the penalty phase, they were all holding hands. And the interviews I saw was, it wasn't because they were all friends, it was because they had made the heavy emotional decision to sentence this grandmother to death. So on January 18th of 1991, the judge agrees with the jury and he sentences Blanche to die by lethal injection. She is sent to North Carolina Correctional Institution for Women. And due to the automatic appeals in progress, Blanche has still been able to avoid being executed. During the investigation that had ultimately led to Blanche's conviction, her father, Petey Kaiser, as and her first husband, James Taylor, as we already discussed, were both exhumed. This is when they had discovered that both had died of arsenic poisoning. There are people that speculate there are other victims, including close friends and relatives who all died mysteriously and some appeared to show signs of arsenic poisoning. This included her mother-in-law, Isla Taylor. Blanche has been charged with the murder of James and Isla Taylor, as well as the attempted murder of Reverend Moore, but she's only been charged. The authorities have not made the decision to actually try her. Since she's already been convicted and has been sentenced to death. And as for her father, Parker P.D. Kaiser, they did not charge her with that murder. And their reasoning is because they felt like the horrible way that P.D. treated Blanche as a girl might make her sympathetic in the eyes of a jury. There are also pending charges in the deaths of several other victims. So here are some interesting Tidbits. In December of 1990, Reverend Moore filed for divorce from Blanche. In October of '91, the prosecuting attorney on Blanche's case, by the name of a woman by the name of Janet Branch, is arrested for hitting her estranged husband with a tire iron. In 1993, the North Carolina State Bar scolds Janet Branch for playing with the idea of a movie deal while the trial was still going on. In 1994, both the North Carolina Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear Blanche's appeals. In December of 1997, a Forsyth County Superior Court judge denies Blanche's third request for a new trial. In October of 2015, five years ago, Jana Branch, who now has the last name of Downing, commits suicide by stepping into traffic on Interstate 485 in Charlotte. Now, Blanche, she just turned 87 in February of 2020. While in prison, she has received treatment for cancer, which has come back a time or two, it seems. It also seems pretty likely that she will die of that or natural causes rather than by lethal injection. A journalist who was in the early stages of his career at the time that Blanche was on trial said he thought Blanche was diabolical and cunning. He also said that until then, he hadn't really seen true evil. So now I want to take a minute or two to talk about female serial killers. They are not as common as male serial killers, this is true, but they can be just as brutal. I'm going to focus in on just those that like to poison. So Judy Buenoano, who was nicknamed the Black Widow, she poisoned her husband with arsenic and she drowned her partially paralyzed son. So this son ended up needing leg braces and the reason he needed them was because he started showing signs of arsenic poisoning. She also attempted to kill her fiance, but this she did with a car bomb. The motives for these killings and attempted killing? Insurance money. She didn't admit to it, but she was executed in the electric chair in 1998. Jane Topin was a nurse nicknamed Jolly Jane because of how cheerful she was. Secretly, she was doing experiments on her patients. She was using morphine and atropine. Apparently, poisoning patients wasn't Enough to keep her amused, so she started picking people in her life to poison. One of them was her foster sister, Elizabeth. Jane admitted to Elizabeth's killing in 1902, and she said, quote, I held her in my arms and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. She also admitted to killing a minimum of 31 people. She is found insane and sent to a state hospital for life. She claims that she was only a murderer because the man she loved had married someone else. She says that if she'd have been married and had children, basically she wouldn't have had space in her head for murder. Kristen Gilbert. She is a nurse at the VA Medical Center in Massachusetts. She killed four veteran patients by injecting them with epinephrine. She also attempted to kill three others. The prosecutors in her case wanted the death penalty because it occurred on federal ground. But in 2001, the jury gave her life in prison instead. Nanny Doss. Nanny got life in prison in 1955 after she confessed to murdering four husbands. Arsenic was determined to be the cause of the last victim's death. And then she went on to admit that she used arsenic to kill the three before that. Her very first husband, according to Tulsa World, escaped when someone tipped him off about eating food she made. He then went on to tell a reporter that three of their five children had died young. Nanny later confesses to killing her mother, sister, grandson, and mother-in-law. Dorothea Puente had some stuff buried in her backyard. In 1988, homicide detectives found body parts belonging to four women and three men, in that backyard. She was accused of poisoning her tenants with prescription drugs and then keeping their social security checks. She was tried for nine murders and two other killings were also attributed to her. In the early 1900s, Amy Archer Gillian was supposedly operating a nursing home in Windsor, Connecticut. A lot of these residents began dying. Strangely, they all had met their ends shortly after naming Amy in their life insurance policies. In just five years, at least 48 people died, including her second husband. An investigation would reveal that she was using arsenic or strychnine. So you can see poison is used frequently. Arsenic is preferred, it appears. And a lot of times money is the motivation for... For poisoning someone that of course brings us back to blanche kaiser taylor moore preacher's daughter preacher's wife mother grandmother and convicted murderer this is a church lady that i do not want showing up at my house hang tight for the final crumb first please rate and review subscribe i'd appreciate it you can send me an email at acrimebiscuit@gmail.com at gmail.com or check out my facebook page Crime Biscuit Colon, a true crime podcast. Now here's your final crumb. If you befriend the grandmotherly lady down the street and she has a mysterious history of burying husbands and boyfriends, maybe find yourself a new friend. And don't even think about eating the pudding she made you. Thanks for joining me. Bye.